Hey, I'm Josh Patrick. I'm 38 years old. And about 10 years ago, one of my heroes in preaching invited me and several other young guys from the Restoration Movement to join a group for encouragement, resourcing, and just connection. We met every year for at least five years. And while the gatherings were encouraging and life-giving in many ways, as time elapsed and as our stories began to go in different directions, I noticed two disturbing trends. Uh, first, there was a departure from some of the big rocks of Christian theology, uh, the most noticeable of which was uh, the total uh, de-emphasis on substitutionary atonement and the individual's need for forgiveness from Jesus. The other was um, a lack of conversation and passion around holiness. The other thing that happened was uh, not just a departure, but there was an embrace of heresy. The two most notable uh, heresies were uh, the total disregard of Jesus' teaching on the existence of hell, and the other was uh, an acceptance of homosexual behavior as acceptable to God. So it dawned on me as we were emailing each other to plan our sixth annual gathering that I no longer had much in common with the other guys in the group. It made me very sad that there was such a departure from the core teachings of the Bible, uh, and there seemed to be a, just a blatant disregard for the authority of the Bible in general. And so I had to pull out uh, from my own soul and my own sanity, and I'm no longer a part of it. I'd like to ask uh, Douglas Jacoby and uh, David Young and um, Brett Andrews, if you'd please come up. We've asked these men, uh, they're part of the uh, seven folks who uh, have signed this thing, so they're going to come up on the stage. By the way, we wanted to keep it small to begin with just because we wanted to make sure that we have a solid foundation uh, that we can invite others into. We want input, and uh, part of it is going to be through questions and answers. It's on purpose that this document says it's a draft uh, for you. I wanted to acknowledge a couple of people who have been kind enough to show up and be with us tonight, um, and uh, we're definitely going to be getting their input on uh, what we're doing because we respect them. Uh, Douglas mentioned earlier uh, Matthew Bates, whose book uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone is a really important book. And Matthew's here for the uh, Disciple Making Forum. Matthew, just raise your hand. So he's here. We, we thank you for being with us. <clears throat> Another person that I wanted to acknowledge is my buddy Ralph Moore at the back. Ralph, will you raise your hand? Ralph's with us. And uh, most of you don't know about Ralph, but uh, um, in the last several years, the Exponential Network has done extensive research on uh, multiplying churches, church movements that are just multiplying. And uh, Ralph is uh, the founder of the Hope Chapel movement, and from the churches that Ralph has planted, there's been about 2,400 churches that have been planted. And uh, so, yeah, Ralph's a good friend, and we look forward to uh, Ralph sharing his thoughts with us as well. And uh, I mentioned those two just because I want you to know if you're here tonight, uh, 
we're really glad you are because we want to process this. So on your tables are cards, and uh, what we'd like you to do is any questions that you have to write them down. And uh, my friend, Josh Patrick. Josh, will you come on up here? Um, Josh is my uh, co-minister here at the church. We've been working together for four and a half years, and uh, it's just a delight to work with him. Uh, What we'd like to do, and Josh will coordinate things with us. Josh is on the same page with all this stuff. Um, is uh, if you could write down your questions and Josh will be picking them up. He might go through a few of them to get the most salient question at the moment. And then uh, uh, Josh is going to share them with us and I'll help uh, decide uh, if, if we need help, which of the guys to tackle the um, questions. So sound good? All right. So I don't know if anybody has a question to begin. Oh, this young man over here. Looks like he has a question. Is that is that correct? <laughs> he he's a wonderful human being. Hope so. He's my son. Oh. Okay. This this uh, question, which only he would write, is is this is this only for Armenians? Uh, so uh, most of you are well familiar with the Calvinist Armenian divide. And I really think David Young is the best person to answer this question. Well, that question was destined to happen, wasn't it? (laughs) No, it's not. It's not even only for people of a Restoration heritage. Um, Chad, how are you? um, What we believe is that uh, the Gospel Coalition, which is a five-point Calvinist organization, as you know, has been wildly effective. I think there were 75 million hits on its pages in the last year, even. And for very many of us, including myself, um, the Gospel Coalition has provided just uh, rich resources, very helpful stuff. I love the guys. Uh, One of my colleagues, I think is here, Renee Sproles, um, her favorite, she works with me, her favorite preacher is Tim Keller. And her and I think everyone else is second, and so I'm one of the seconds there. But we turn a lot to them. Um, but we do believe that their uh, Calvinism is a worldview; it's not just um, a doctrine, and that um, the Restoration movement has a worldview that's worth sp- uh, sharing. It's worth spreading. And so um, we are Armenian, and uh, it's an Armenian-oriented document. But our interest is. I'm making a short answer long. Our interest is whoever wants to rally around with us. Go ahead, Douglas. Um, We do believe that all Armenians have a chance to be saved. Uh, (laughs) Who are members of the country, Armenia. But I'm not sure everyone here knows what Armenian is as opposed to Calvinist. Wow. Brief explanation? Yeah, so uh, let me, I'll clarify that. So uh, the Armenian Creed, by the way, is a one-page document if you uh, do a Google search for it, it's a one-page document. Uh, most people who tell me they're not Armenians, uh, I just ask them, have you ever read the Armenian Creed? And I've never had anybody yet who has told me that they've read it. So they think they're against something that they don't even know what it is. Uh, so I would encourage you to do a Google search. But the uh, Armenian Creed of, I believe it was 1611, was written in response to the Council of Dort. Is that right, David? Douglas? It's certainly plausible. We'll yeah. consider it. 
in other words, they were, they were defining themselves by what they didn't believe. So a Calvinist, somebody, if you think of the acronym TULIP, total, they believe in total hereditary depravity, unconditional election, meaning that God elects before creation who's going to go to heaven or hell. Uh, limited atonement, Jesus only died for the elect. Irresistible grace, once he's uh, picked you, he's predestined you and picked you, his grace is irresistible. And of course, if he picked you, he ordained you to be saved, uh, the P is perseverance of the saints, you will persevere to the end. Now, um, there are several elements of this faith statement, of course, that are contrary to that. And this is an Ar- Armenian uh, faith statement, but not, over, not uh, oppressively so. A good-hearted uh, Calvinist could, I think, really benefit. But we did want to have a voice for the, uh, view, the Armenian point of view, uh, a graceful, winsome, attractive voice that is not being spoken today. It's very hard to find good Armenian theology and especially at a practical level of everyday Christians. I hope that helps. Douglas, did you want to add anything? No, that's great. I, I just maybe some people didn't know that. Yeah. No, Technical good. word. Good. So if you have a question, uh, please hold it up and uh, Michelle Eagle will come by and grab your card. Bobby, you're ready for a new question? Yes, sir. Okay, here we go. Two doctrines uh, not stated explicitly in the faith statement creation, number one, and the Trinity. And in parenthesis, by Trinity, it says a doctrine neglected and even overlooked in the Restoration Movement. And the question is why? Um, there are many doctrines, I would say, that we chose not to expand upon. I, I think those, um, for, for me anyway, those are so settled in evangelical Christianity and, and that, um, that it just didn't bear um, expansion. Um, but that's a good question. Yeah. The doctrine of creation is there uh, in the statement on the gospel. You know, it talks about God creating the world. And in terms of an explicit six days, uh, ages, uh, literary framework, uh, we just feel like that's in the realm of personal elements of the faith. As long as we uphold the inspiration and infallibility of the Genesis account of creation, we're going to be content with that. Okay, here's one more. Oh, just, just uh, okay. somebody's pressing a little bit more on the Trinitarian language. All right. Uh, oh, yes, it is very much so in the biblical sense, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, it begins with, I don't have it with me, but we want to honor God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going, Josh. Here we go. Uh, this is a question uh, taken from a, a direct quotation from the faith statement. Is there a possibility that some will take, quote, remission of sins, end quote, as the only reason for baptism? Okay. David? Well, um, yeah, it is possible, I think. It's, uh, so when you have a statement like this, uh, First of all, restorationists generally don't like to do statements like this, and th- these questions illustrate why. Um, also, if you put out a statement and 
uh, you know, the way things work now with social media and so forth, there are going to be a lot of, probably some blind spots I think we'll all discover. And one reason why we're doing this meeting tonight is to begin to feel, to see what others perceive uh, we've written. So these are good questions. Um, You know, the main Christian creeds use the phrase for remission of sins. And uh, Nicene Creed, for example, and my understanding is that Nicene Creed does not mean for the remission of sins to imply that there's no other reason, but rather because the phrase is a comprehensive phrase, that it includes all other reasons. Um, At least that's how I would read the creed. And so when we say for the remission of sins, we're comfortable that we're quoting directly from Scripture, and we take that phrase to be a comprehensive phrase, that once remission of sins is granted by God, then all the other blessings that are associated with uh, water baptism are, um, are given as well. But, but again, it's a, it's a document that's going to have weaknesses and uh, some blind spots. And so uh, probably the, the things that we hear tonight are going to be really helpful for us. This, this document is nothing like the Nashville statement that came out in whenever it was August, I think. Um, you know, we, we don't, it, it's nothing like that. But at the same time, we all saw what happened, how that document was really kind of excoriated from, from the left and the right, really. And so we're sensitive to how you word things and what people, how people hear them and uh, what you put in and what you don't put in. Douglas? You know, in most of Christian history, the remission of sins through baptism was non-controversial. I mean, I would say it was unanimous, but there were some breakaway groups that thought differently. So it's really since the Protestant Reformation that that's been slipping. And the other thing is that the doctrine of the sinner's prayer, conversion, you know, through asking Jesus in your heart, which dates back to approximately 1835, it's kind of replaced baptism in much of the evangelical world, but that's really a novelty in terms of church history. Right? That's only you know, uh, just over 180 years old. That's right. I just want to draw everybody's attention to that the wording is important here, baptism as an expression of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Baptism uh, as conceived in the, in the Bible, Acts 2.38, uh, Acts 22.16, and so forth, is an expression of faith. Faith is the crucial element, and I think this articulates it. Okay, here's your next question. Do I understand correctly that something like women's role in ministry is on par with the core beliefs like the lordship of Jesus? If so, would this mean that such churches should not attempt to participate? Yeah, I... Um, first of all, if you were to talk to the people who've worked through this document, I'm sure that you wouldn't find that we're monolithic on everything with that. What we're in agreement on is that God has placed an order in the world, and we do well to honor that, to, to honor that order. Um, it, is, it is one thing to talk about women's role in the home, men and women, the husband and the wife's role in the home. It's another thing to talk about the the consistency of male leadership in the home being consistent with the male leadership in the church and that God's not a God of disorder. And so why would he, why would he create confusion in the order by having order one way in the home and another way in the, in the, um, in the church? But to say that women can't be, or, or that, that men are to be uh, the 
primary responsibility in the church by being elders is not to say that women shouldn't be leaders in some way, and in many ways, that women can't have significant roles. My, um, my grandmother was a, was a great leader in our church, but she wasn't an elder and never wanted to be an elder. So um, I'm not sure if that, to what degree that answers the question, but it's not a matter of women leading. It's a matter of what is, what is the God-ordained order of the world and how do we live that consistently in the church and in the home? We believe that in creating a platform for collaboration, we need to respect the topography of Scripture. Some things are bigger, more important than others. Some truths are non-negotiable. Uh, in the analogy in the, in the document you saw, we had kind of the, the essential truths, the core truths. Jesus is Lord. Now, is the women's role core? Like you have a different view, you're not going to be saved? Well, no, we wouldn't say that. But I wouldn't either put it in the outer circle and say, well, you know, who knows? You know, we'll find out when we, you know, we get to heaven. It's in that middle circle, which we're calling important. For collaboration, I think we can have different views on the outer circle. We must agree on the inner circle. If there's disagreement in the middle circle, the important, it's going to be a pretty bumpy ride. I, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. And the the one thing that I meant to mention earlier is the issue for me, I think the issue for us, is not women's role in the church. It is how do you deal with your exegesis, your, your hermeneutic of the Bible that leads you to that conclusion? Because the danger is if you can uh, reason away the one thing, then that, that, uh, it's a slippery slope to what else it, it leads to. And, and I know that may sound alarmist in some way, but I think that there are solid historic and um, biblical arguments for, for that concern. So the short answer is um, the, the framing of the question uh, seems to reflect a misunderstanding of the uh, belief statement because this issue is clearly something that godly saved people disagree on. It's in that important realm, and yet it's important. It's important because it's a reflection. How we handle it is a reflection of our trust in the normative teaching of Scripture. Next question. This is a, this is a really practical nuts and bolts uh, question. How do we transform the current mindset of the church away from programs or number growth multiplication to a practical theology rooted in truth and on disciple making. David, uh, I know you've been working on that, so why don't you jump in and then Brett, because I know you guys are working on it as well. I, I'm, I might be the least qualified one to answer that question up here, actually. We're, we're trying to transition our congregation and, uh, you know, we feel really good about where we are five years into the process. But um, I suspect Brett's been doing this a lot longer than I have. I apologize. I was still processing what Bobby said as you read that. Would you read that one more time? <laughs> this is going to get old, isn't it? It's okay. Uh, how do we transform the current mindset of church away from programs or numerical growth 
to a practical and applicable theology rooted in truth and on disciple making? Um, that, that's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and I appreciate the spirit of the question. F- for me, it's not, it's not an either or. I mean, the whole programmatic thing, I, I get that. Um, but the, the whole thing is being, ob- I, I think um, Tony said it earlier, um, it's both wings on uh, the body of Christ. Um, uh, uh, candidly, one of my concerns with an emphasis on discipleship is very often it becomes, um, it, it becomes code language for inter- being internally focused. You know, if you want an internally focused church, then say, it's got to be about disciple. We're not going to talk about evangelism or, or quote, quote, church growth. It's not either or. If we do away with the passion for reaching lost people, then we're doing away with the, with the point of, um, the ultimate point of discipleship is to honor God, but we honor God by reaching the people that Jesus called them to reach. So how do we do that? I don't think it's an either or. I think we do that through church planting, quite frankly, where you have to do both. You have to grow people. How's that for a a nice little segue? But you have to to grow people if you're going to start new churches. And it's not, you can't just reach people and then they go out the door. You have to reach people, grow people, send people. So I I think an emphasis on... Uh, we're going to honor God by reaching lost people to disciple so they can reach more lost people. The language is very specific, right? We're planting, we're, we're reaching, we want to disciple more people to plant more churches, that, plant, that reach more people, that start more churches. So disciples right. who make disciples who start churches that start churches. Yeah, that was a great line. I don't know who came up with you it, did. but somehow, you did. <laughs> somehow it made it into Todd's book. <laughs> so are you saying that church growth and discipleship, are, it's a false dichotomy to pit those against each other? It's one and the same. I mean, they're, they're a lot, for me, it's the same continuum. You know, we exi- the church is the only place that exists. Here's my philosophy. Church is the only place that exists for people who yet, don't yet belong to it. If leaders in the church aren't passionate about reaching lost people, nobody else in the church is going to because the nature of every organization, the nature of every person is going to be to be centered on how can I be helped? How can you help me grow? How can you help me be fulfilled? So the focus needs to be ultimately, obviously, to honor God in all things, but we honor God in all things. You know, Jesus wept for lost people. A friend of mine, Vince Anson, she says, if we don't weep for lost people, our heart is not as close to Jesus as we think it is. 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 Our heart is not as close to Jesus as we think it is. So, Bobby, since you co-wrote a book about this, yeah, well, take a swing, brother. We need to hear yeah, from you. No, I just I, I want to be conscious of the question and the larger picture. So, let me just say this: the first, most important thing is to become convinced that disciple making is the core mission of the local church. And that includes reaching lost people, typically called evangelism, which isn't in the Bible, but the concept is. And it includes sanctification, helping people to become more and more like Jesus. That is the core mission of the church. Uh, When we get to the point where to do otherwise is sin, then everything else will fall into place. 
But if we try to put all the other stuff in place without the core conviction that the, the core mission of the church is making disciples of Jesus in multiple contexts, multiple social spaces, but it's the model Jesus gave us who loved us more than anyone else could is he devoted his best time and energies to making disciples. And once that happens, the practicalities will come secondary because it's difficult. Uh, we're going to have Jim Putman share in just a few minutes uh, just because I wanted everybody to know of a really great example. Uh, do they have faults? Yes, they do. But they're a great example to look to of a, uh, a group of churches that said, we're going to die on the hill of making disciples. Part of why we do the, the National Disciple Making Forum is so that people can uh, get exposed to different ways to focus on disciple making because there's not just one size that fits all. For example, uh, Brett in uh, New Life, Brett is a great preacher. And so uh, their model of disciple making, they need to and they want to make it about Jesus' method, but it's not going to be where Brett's not or others are not preaching because that's still consistent with Jesus' method. We have some folks here, I believe, who are um, doing more organic movements, trying to follow Jesus' model. So um, I feel like I'm getting long-winded. David, save me. And now I have to speak. Um, so one of the, if I heard the question right, it was a transitional type question, maybe a little from a programmatic model to a disciple-making model. We have had some experience at, at making the transition, so I'm going to just bulletproof of things we've done. Jim Putman was the first man I heard speak on the subject who, who just made so much sense to me. Is Jim in the room? I, it's hard to see with the lights. He's right There's over Jim. here. Every, so every time Jim says something, I always have this feeling of, man, I'm... I think I'm smart, but I never figured that out. It's just like every sentence he says. So I listened to him at Exponential five years ago. I came back, and then I got the book, Disciple Shift, which Bobby and Jim wrote together. And uh, we just began the process of implementing some of the things in the book, shifting from a program to a disciple-making model of church. We hired Bobby at our church as a coach. He worked for us for about 18 months, and he just came and worked with us and helped us rethink everything. You know this, Josh, because we also hired you for a stretch. Um, then we began to um, grandfather in uh, some of our older ministries. We've kind of starved them budget-wise. We've essentially said, if you're not doing disciple-making, we, we won't increase your budget. The, all the new money goes towards disciple-making. We've opened some schools at our church whose express purpose is disciple-making. We actually have a homeschooling tutorial that is all about disciple-making, and it's the Oxford tutorial of the state of Tennessee. It's a fantastic tutorial. Um, we've developed a tool that makes disciple making uh, easy to replicate. So it's a DBS thing, it's a discovery Bible study, and everybody, anybody can do it. We've had lost people can do it. You give them the bookmark, they can take it, they run with it. Um, we now integrate disciple talk in, in everything we do. We have targets, we've hired a discipleship coach, a full-time guy, that's what his job is, is to help us, um, help us think discipleship, get people in disciple-making groups. And we set a goal that we would have 500 people in disciple-making relationships within the first four years. And, and, and we've done that. 
And so now we're excited that we're going beyond that, breaking through that barrier. We have special discipleship activities that sort of highlight and so forth. This is what we're doing to, trans, to, to make the um, transition. But because we're an old, large church, we, we're carrying all the programs with us. So we all have to work twice as hard to make it work. Douglas, do you want to add anything? I can um, confess. Our wing of the restoration movement, um, which really goes back to 1967, used to be much more focused on one another, religion, and disciple-making, so that actually in the 80s and 90s, we were actually called the discipling movement. But of course, we've become very mature, and we're no longer normally accused of such things. What I'm saying is, in our part of the restoration movement, which is just 110,000 people, I think we're in a kind of a a mode of overreaction uh, to abuses done in the past, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Babies aren't that great swimmers going down the drain. I think as a result, in many of our congregations, uh, there's a lot of clutter and gunk. And I'm not talking about emotional baggage. We all have that. But I mean, that's where programs really do get in the way. And you've got to have an axe man or a group at the top who are willing to make the tough decisions because it's so easy to just hide behind another good program and not really be involved in the nuts and bolts. And I think that takes courage for the church leader leaders. That takes courage. And so you can pray for us to have more courage. Yes, Brad. Thank you, Seth. We have tried to become better at disciple-making. That process for us, some specific... You got really practical. That was just really smart. That was... I wish I'd done that. Um, first of all, we took about three years where all we did in staff meeting was read the New Testament and ask the question, what does this teach us about making disciples? Um, we've been praying. The other thing that we... we we've we spent too many years uh, as David trying to wear Saul's armor meaning other people have had discipleship processes that work really well for them, and so we've just tried to wear them wholesale, and they haven't worked. And so what we did was we just, we have prayed, God, you show us how you want to do, how you want us to make disciples in this place at this time, um, so that it's, so that we're not pushing something, we are following you and we're under your blessing. A couple of things have happened in the last year that have really been a blessing to us, um, not the least of which is um, God put a missionary in my life who um, has been a disciple maker in China and other places for a year. And as he spoke, it can, it's like, that's what it is. At the very same time, um, we start hearing Ralph Moore speak more about disciple making and and God is putting together in us a clearer vision for what discipleship needs to be a new life so that we feel like it's we're wearing we're David going into battle against Goliath and not just trying to wear somebody else's armor yeah so I would encourage that yeah so great conversation Um, let me just say uh, Robert Coleman wrote the book the master plan of evangelism Um, and uh, I, I he said something I've heard Ralph Moore at the back say something similar and I will definitely say it's true Robert Coleman put it this way last year at the National Disciple Making Forum he said you know I'm trying to follow Jesus method but I'm just having to learn stuff every day about how to do it better and uh, if Robert Coleman's saying that we're all going to be saying that what I wanted to say is that 
If you set it up where there's the ideal example, you're going to be disappointed. I think there are good examples. There are good practices. The key thing is, is it the core mission and is it what we've got to do and we've got to ask God to help us get really good at it? That's why we're having the National Disciple Making Forum to help that conversation. This is a, I'm just going to ask this question. I, I feel like uh, it, just, it needs to be asked. Uh, I hear more and more people say something like, is this discipleship thing a fad, a wave that American Christians are going to be fascinated by and then get bored? Uh, will this be a temporary uh, fascination, a, a fad, or will it endure and uh, prove to be a true restoration and not just a, a momentary thing. Do you mean the method of discipling? Or are you talking about the network we're discussing tonight? Oh, I, I think uh, discipleship in general and the, the remarkable interest uh, just in Christian publishing uh, and, and the, the conversations that are happening in the evangelical blogosphere uh, and just the interest level uh, in general about discipleship and disciple making across denominational lines, is that going to be uh, temporary or will it endure and will it, uh, will it be something the Holy Spirit uses to re-engineer the spiritual architecture of our country? I don't... What's that, David? You should call on someone. I want to answer that one. Yeah, okay. Please answer it, David Young. It's the only way it's ever been done. It's not a fad. Maybe the language is a bit faddish, uh, trendish, but it's the only way it's ever been done. Uh, what's happened is uh, the collapse of our families. And so the natural disciple-making process of fathers to sons and mothers to daughters has collapsed. And so what we find ourselves doing now is having to uh, replace a very natural disciple-making process. My father discipled me. He was with me every day. He lived with me. He held me accountable. He loved me. He invested his life in me. Anything I am today, I owe to my father. But half of my church doesn't have a father. Nobody's pouring into them. No one is training them. No one is investing in them. Uh, no one is loving them to be like Jesus. And so, um, so what has changed is now we have to do what was a much more natural process in the past. And in fact, uh, uh, Rick Oster will know more about what I'm about to discuss than I do, but in, in, in ancient education, both in the rabbinical schools, the yeshiva and the other schools, as well as in the Greco-Roman system, uh, where the pro-gymnasmata, this method of learning that was taught to children, it was always disciple-making. The classroom model, that's, that's kind of our model. Uh, but the old model was the model of the apprentice. And so Socrates gathers a group of students and they live with them. The rabbi had a group of students and they lived with them. It was a disciple and, uh, and a, uh, a disciple maker and a disciple uh, relationship. Think about this as the same. You have Moses and Joshua. You have Elijah and Elisha. You have Paul and Timothy. Do you remember that um, John the Apostle discipled Papias and Polycarp who disciples Irenaeus? I mean, this, this has always been the model the reason we have to talk about it today is because it's collapsed. Let me, um, uh, this is really, really good. I, I, I want to say something um, to everybody. I, I commend it to you. 
I think that naturally right now it's, it's becoming popular because the ways we're doing church aren't working. I think there's a, just a general sense by thoughtful church leaders around the country, it's not working. So it's pushing us back. I mean, uh, we listen, we hear people like Ralph Moore, and Ralph will say uh, the Hope Chapel movement was 90% disciple-making. Uh, the exponential folks are saying it's about disciple-making, and people are attracted to that. And it's for reasons like what David is saying. Nobody is discipling people today. The world is discipling them. Churches aren't discipling just by Sunday morning programs. But the biggest argument beyond the practicalities that David has described is that it's what Jesus did and his method surely is the wisest method. The Colossians says, in him dwell all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus treated his disciples. There's um, two-thirds of the major accounts in the Gospels. Jesus was investing in 12 men. And uh, you could look at his ministry after three and a half years and say, he just you know, had 12 men and he lost one. And the others, you know, denied him. And, but that was the method he used to launch a movement that changed the world. And uh, we are advocates of the message of Jesus, the gospel message, but also the method of Jesus. Uh, Robert Coleman said, um, and he won me over, that uh, it is the best method of helping people be what God wants him to be. I think it's always a great question to ask what's a trend and what's a fad. And who knows, we can't predict the future in terms of what people are going to be doing. I'm sure that there will be some people who treat it like a fad. But I think the strength of the restoration, I think the reason, I know the reason that I value restoration movement principles is because they, um, because of the value of going back to New Testament principles, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so we're trying to let him build his church his way as he did, as he showed us to in the New Testament. If he showed it in the New Testament, anything that's really effective today because it's being blessed by God is, a, is ultimately a biblical method that was effective in the first century. And we may be rediscovering it now. And so that, by definition, is not a, is not a, 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 a passing fad. It's the way God would build the church. Douglas, that's, you know, that's disciple-making. Good. Yeah, it's, it's really going back to the Bible. Douglas, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. If it stays, it, it was thorough. If, if, it's, if it's ephemeral, then it was a fad. I hope it's not a fad. I hope we're not wasting our time here. But, but I think the, what could kill it is the same thing that's killing society. So the disintegration of society and morals and family and truth, that's come into the church. And so the structure, the family feel of the church disintegrates. And so we're in a very corrosive uh, atmosphere right now. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be a failure. Trying. I mean, I, I know these men 
have invested their lives to this. We don't think it is going to be a failure, but ultimately that will be God. Josh. What would you say are the greatest threats, hindrances, that would keep the flywheel of disciple-making from really catching, uh, especially in America? What are the biggest threats to a disciple-making movement today? Is that the right way to say it, Josh? Sure, yes. Well, one is that just busyness. You know, you're maxed out. We have no free time. It's hard to imagine adding anything. And we're just, we're busy. It's a crazy society. Visit, this is why it's good to visit other countries. A lot of countries, they're not like us. You know, obsessive and... This is a really important question. I'd like for each of us to, to answer it. Uh, Douglas, you're right on the money. David, Brett, and then I'd like to say something as well. This is the fundamental question. What are the, Okay, this is a disciple-making... Uh, like It's a, 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 the, a theological network that advocates disciple-making. Great. What's going to stop it from really having an impact? I think that for some of us, um, we don't really want it. Um, Douglas is right. We're busy. It's hard to want it. I've got all I can do. You know, if I worked 70 hours, it was a short week. And the um, church rewards me for programs. They like it if I have a great sermon. Um, and if I'm discipling three guys, it doesn't mean a whole lot to the church. And so uh, I don't have to do it. Honestly, I really like coming home and, and having a a house where there's not people waiting for me to do something more. And so I think really for, for me and for a lot of our people, we just really don't want it. We, we would love to think that it's happening. I'm glad these guys are doing it. Um, but I'm not sure how badly we want it. And so we may have to be um, humbled by God and to realize that this is our only hope. Hmm. Um, I'd say two things. The one has to do with I don't know, and the other is method. The I don't know one is, my mom used to tell me when I was growing up, um, Brett, God's not going to get you, or Satan's not going to get you with something that's clearly bad. He will try to get you with things that are good and then use them against you. And so that's where I don't know exactly how Satan would do that, but it's like how many times does divisiveness divisiveness really look like conviction? You know, we think that we're holding on to something with conviction and it's a godly conviction, but we're really just kind of being petty and personal and divisive. And so my guess is that, that, that that is the way that Satan could worm his way in and do some deception and, and stop momentum somewhere. The other thing that I would say is, um, atta- kind of alluding to this earlier, attaching method too much to um, purpose. Mm. Um, how do you do discipleship effectively where you are? Mm. What... Uh, Brian Jones in Philadelphia says, kill small groups because small groups will not work in Philadelphia. Brian is never one for understatement, but you know, that's kind of the, he's, he's speaking to a reality of the Northeast Corridor. Um, one of the reasons that I really appreciate the, this one man who's discipling me in discipleship is I've talked to him about how do you do it? And, and he says, Brett, 
And this is a fellow who disciples lots of people. He said, this is one of your most effective discipleship tools. And then he, I met, the first time I met him, he was sending a missionary to Africa. He had been discipling him for three years. And that week, he was going to be sending him to start a new church in Africa. It was the first time he'd ever met him face to face. This missionary to be was living in California the whole time. He's, learned, he's discipling a high executive in the State Department, and he says, Brett, it's through this. Talking on the phone on the way to work, talking on the phone on the way back. This is not somebody, somebody who doesn't have time in the week, time for a typical small group Bible study, but I can talk to him on the phone a couple of times a week, and we can talk about the scriptures that we've been studying and talk about, so what's God saying to you, and talk about now who are you discipling. So, so if we get stuck in particular methods and say that's discipleship, that could hinder our ability to move forward as well. Let me, um, um, I could get really passionate about this, and I, I don't want to get us distracted, but I do just want to say this. I think that uh, in North America, um, our culture and postmodernism is so thoroughly discipling all of us that the biggest problem is conviction about King Jesus is Lord, hell is real. The majority of people are going there. If People are going there if they don't make Jesus Lord. And he's given us a mission. And he said, help. It was D.L. Moody who said, you know, the Lord has given me a lifeboat and said, save as many as you can. I don't think our people believe that like they once did. I think the big problem is a conviction problem, which is why theology is so important. So many people were shocked when the Supreme Court said uh, homosexual marriages are fine. Uh, but what we didn't realize is that over a period of 20 years, most of the culture had bought into that. They were converted to it. They were discipled in it, where now the majority of evangelical Christians think homosexual marriage is fine. I think that you're seeing erosion in all these other places. Instead of proclaiming the gospel, we want to do social justice that doesn't lead to leading people to Christ. I coached a church planter in Indianapolis after a year of letting him do what he wanted to with uh, 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 reaching, uh, serving lunches to prostitutes and helping the poor. I sat down with him and I asked him, great, you've plant, you're planting a church. How many lost people did you win? And he thought for a minute and he looked at me and smiled. He said, I did lead one person to Christ, but it wasn't on his scorecard in any important factor in it. And I think the truth is when we really talk to people that the, the forces of tolerance, non-judgmentalism, inclusion, and acceptance of everyone is eroding our beliefs about the reality that Jesus is king, he's coming back, there is a day of judgment, and we want to be ready for him and to honor him. Not just then and there, but here and now. It's good stuff. So we've talked about hindrances. Let's, let's turn the tone now uh, toward hope. So I would love to hear any or all of you uh, call out the hope that you have for the restoration movement. Brett, why don't you start? We'll go reverse. Can I think for a second? Sorry. No. <laughs> I could blabber on. But... No, 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 no. Um, 
I, I'm going to start, and then we'll just go across uh, each. My hope is that I really think the restoration movement, at, all it is is we're just going to try to follow the Bible. We're trying to go back and follow the Bible. And I think God gave us a great gift in the Bible. And disciple-making is teaching people to trust and follow Jesus, following the Bible, trusting the Holy Spirit. And that is the greatest news on planet Earth. That is great for here and now. I, a year ago, my sister suddenly died. And I'm at Mayo Clinic, and she's dying. And my other sisters who are not Christians are up there. And my sister, she's not coming back. She had Crestfield Jacobs disease. She's dying. I'm so glad she became a follower of Jesus. I knew where she was going. And I live with that hope. And the, the, the blessing of God in Scripture is the greatest thing, not just for then and there, but it's here and now. I, I'm married to a wonderful woman, and we are, we are two sinful people, but because of the teaching of the Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the local church in a restoration movement environment, we've learned how to love one another and we're, we've been able to communicate those things to other people and this is the best life we could ever live. So, Brett. I feel like I need to come forward and be <laughs> baptized again or something. <laughs> the, um, um, I, I, again, I appreciate the question. I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think that any of us puts our hope in the restoration movement. I think that we uh, put our hope, the, we, we value the restoration movement principles that call us to New Testament principles that put us under the blessing of God. The, as I see it, the New Testament principle, the, the, the restoration movement comes from Jesus' high priestly prayer. May they be one so that the world may know that you sent me. Um, you know, so it's, it's unity based on the message of Jesus. Your word is truth. Sanctify them the truth. Your word is truth. Um, so for the purpose of evangelism. So it all fits in there together. My prayer is that God will use us as, you know, the, I, I love Barton W. Stone's um, desire may may. Christian unity be our polar star. They, the restoration movement leaders were not concerned about propagating a, a restoration movement. What they were concerned about is leading people to Christ in Christian unity so the world would know who Jesus is. And, and that's what I believe that our hope is in and that this can help us forward in that. We are uniquely positioned for that. Exponential is a great example of that. There are people who come to Exponential from all different kinds, all different denominational backgrounds. I think the Restoration Movement leaders would be quite proud of what's happening with Exponential because there's a unity in Christ in that, and people from other denominations have said no other tribe could do Exponential. Okay, 5,000 people every year, and I think in, 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 in Florida, probably 10,000 at all of our conferences, plus online, there are tens of thousands more, and plus work in reading the, the materials. No other tribe could do that, they say, because every other tribe would be about lifting up their own tribe. But we're about lifting up Christ, and when Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me, and I think that's the rallying cry that, that I'm excited about with the Restoration Movement moving forward. Yeah, historically, the Restoration Movement has been a unity movement, calling people out of traditions, denominations, and false teaching to unite on what is important, 
to a lesser extent on, the, on what is essential, but also what is important. We really haven't done very well. What would really excite me would be if an appreciation for theology, for healthy teaching, for Bible. I mean, this is what I do. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm going to say something like this. But if, if we can be passionate about the scripture, then I think we'll have the, what we need to overcome our natural historical problem of a sectarianism. You know, we read books by people in all different movements and churches, but we say, oh, but they're not real Christians, so we would never invite them to speak, but we'll read their book. In fact, I'll have 500 copies, please. Uh, it's very inconsistent. Uh, so I, I would love to see more walls coming down, bridges being built, clarity of thought, passion for the Bible. And there are some ways in which it would be good if we could go back 200 years, because they, they had some things on right, I think, in the restoration movement. I'm going to keep it short, but I could go a long time on this. My son and I visited Stratford-upon-Avon a couple of years ago to Shakespeare's house, and I reawakened, was reawakened to the brilliance of this guy. He wasn't just smarter than the rest of us. He was a different category of humanity. But not a single line of Shakespeare has ever rescued anyone from an addiction or saved a broken marriage or pulled someone out of the pit of despair. But I've seen the Word of God do that. I mean, literally seen that. Um, Monday of this week, we had two of our wealthiest women that we asked to disciple, a woman who's been in prison. They baptized her Monday. My son will baptize her son this coming Sunday night. My son's over here. He baptized one of the... Oh, right over here is one of our other ministers. He baptized another son and the son of her cellmate about four or five months ago. We baptized two others from the household, and we did all of it not by telling them, I mean it respectfully, don't worry about what the scriptures say. We baptized them by telling them this word will set you free. It will set you free. K.P. O'Hannon once told you and me, Bobby, at a coffee one time, while you Americans are busy trying to get the scriptures to teach people how to get out of their marriages, over in India we're telling them that the Bible teaches you how to honor your marriage. And he says it works. And so my hope for the restoration movement and for this group is that rather than trying to lead a generation away from the scripture under the false assumption that somehow they'll be free if we can just get them out of the bondage of the scripture, is that we realize that the commands of God are never a burden. They're never a burden. And that we rediscover the power of the word of God. If that's anything, if, 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 if we can offer anything, that's what I think we can offer. This podcast was produced and edited in Franklin, Tennessee by Jason Henderson and Dave Stovall. We hope you join us for another Renew Church Leaders podcast.